Ottawa knows best. They will tell from on high in Ottawa or Gatineau, whatever office tower it is, what a farmer in rural Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Ontario needs to do. Here's what you need to do to be part of climate change. It should be the other way around. Here's what we're already doing. And here's what we can do on a time frame that's reasonable. Because already farming families are under attack through a rising and tripling of a carbon tax. So many more regulations, chemical use regulations that are totally disconnected from what the U.S. is doing. And we're supposed to have regulatory cooperation and alignment with the U.S. And Canada is increasingly more expensive, more complicated, because Ottawa is completely disconnected. We will be 180 degrees different. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Grain Growers of Canada podcast, Beers with Brandon. I'm your host, Brandon Leslie. This summer series podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Beer Canada. Beer Canada is the voice of the people who make our nation's beers, and their members account for 90% of the beer produced in Canada. The sale of beer supports 149,000 Canadian jobs, generates $14 billion in gross domestic product, and $5.7 billion in government tax revenues. Beer Canada has represented Canadian brewers since 1943. October 6th is Canada Beer Day, a day we're celebrating. We need your participation to ensure the Canadian beer industry and the many people and businesses connected to it, including farmers and maltsters, can help build a prosperous Canada in the future. You can find out more information at canadabeerday.ca about how you can get involved. Today is a pretty special episode with somebody I think you'll all have heard of. In fact, he might be our nation's next prime minister. Aaron O'Toole is the MP for the riding of Durham in Ontario. He was first elected there in 2012, and he's also the current leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Born in Montreal, Quebec, he grew up as a middle-class kid in Bowmanville, Ontario. He enrolled in the Royal Canadian Air Force when he was 18 and attended the Royal Military College. His time in the RCF took him across Canada, completing basic training in Chilliwack, BC, earning his wings in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and serving out of Halifax, Nova Scotia as a tactical navigator. During that time, Aaron participated in search and rescue missions on Sea King helicopters. After 12 years of service, Aaron retired from the military and spent the next decade working in the private sector as a corporate lawyer. He's a founding member of the board of directors for the True Patriot Love Foundation, a charity that serves veterans and military families across Canada. He served as parliamentary secretary to the Minister of International Trade before becoming Minister of Veterans Affairs under the Harper government. He then served as the Conservative Shadow Minister of Foreign Affairs for two years prior to his initial run for leader. Aaron, thanks so much for taking your time out of your busy day to join me for a beer and a discussion about the future of Canadian agriculture. Hey, it's great to be with you, Brandon. And a long bio, but I'm also a guy that likes beer, so I'm excited to be on this podcast. Absolutely. Well, well maybe we'll, we'll start there. I know you've brought one of your favorite beers with you today, and, and we'll get into provincial trade barriers is why we couldn't have a, a few more varieties for you. But what are you drinking today, and what is your experience in the micro beer industry, micro craft industry? Well, listen, I'm drinking a Vimy, a Vimy Northeast IPA, made here in Ottawa um, by two veterans of the Canadian Armed Forces who actually are from the Durham region. So I kind of feel like I'm drinking a, a local microbrew. And when I was in the military, before I went to law school in Halifax, I was a little investor in a microbrewery called Garrison, started by a former Navy clearance diver, a good friend of mine. And I love the industry. And Beer Canada has been great. Um, Labatt and Molson 
were huge supporters when a number of us started the True Patriot Love Foundation for Military Families and Veterans, gosh, in 2008-2009. And I used to host a charity event in Toronto that Labatt got behind called the Alexander Keith Sociable. And we raised money for Nellie's Women's Shelter in Toronto. We raised money for the IWK Hospital in Halifax because Alexander Keith was a brewer and people know his name for that, but he was also a conservative politician. And so I thought he was a perfect uh, iconic name to use. And the industry has been so, so supportive of so many good causes, both uh, the, the big brewers and a lot of the micros. And I didn't know those stats, like how much contribution to the GDP, almost several hundred thousand people. It's, it's pretty impressive. And uh, we're really proud of the industry. So cheers. Absolutely. Cheers, my friend. So maybe I'll, I'll pause. And I know you're, you're very passionate about um, the foundation that you were a founding member of. Do you want to just give a little bit more information on what that does? I know I've been to a couple of events in Ottawa and, and you, can, you can attest to the important value of it, but I'd just like to give you the chance to explain kind of what they do. Yeah, thank you for that. True Patriot Love is a charity that was really a grassroots event when a few of us, at the urging of General Rick Hillier, we're going to have a one-time dinner to raise money for the Military Families Fund that Rick Hillier created. And it was the Afghanistan war at the time. And in Southern Ontario, especially, the Highway of Heroes, which runs through my communities in Durham, you know, reminded Canadians of the toll on military families of our war in Afghanistan. So when we held this dinner, we had maybe 10 times the interest we thought from people, from businesses. So what was supposed to be a one-time a charity event turned into a foundation. And by the time I left to run for politics, it had raised about $15 million for injured veterans, military families, their children, some of the costs associated with moves and other things. And now it's probably north of 30 million raised. And I was really proud as veterans minister with the Harper government to partner with my old charitable friends, True Patriot Love, to bring the Invictus Games to Toronto. And I like to joke, Brandon, that at the launch of the Invictus Games, a prince named Harry met an actress named Megan. So indirectly, I'm a royal matchmaker too. <laughs> well, that's that's a heck of a good story, but I know. Yeah, that, that, yeah. and it's true with a bit of a bit of puffery at the end. Well, you know, that's just that's how good stories are made, and they tend to be over beers. There might have been one involved around the opening of the Invictus Games, I would suspect. So, but, but for the record, this is my first beer, so it's not really a beer-induced story. No, I believe you. I, I, it, it is reasonable early in the day, but I appreciate you uh, sacrificing and, and enjoying one of those tasty beverages. So maybe I'll, I'll ask you a, a question here. I, I know you, you just went to Alberta very recently uh, and I did get a pit stop at Stampede. Um, I had the chance to go out there and it was unbelievable. It, it felt fantastic. You know, how, how did it feel to be able to connect with real people again after, I know you're in a beautiful studio and you might want to speak to that perhaps too, but how does it feel to be able to connect with real people and with the likelihood of a campaign pretty high this fall, is it going to be mostly an air war or, or are you expecting to be able to travel across and actually engage with people again? Well, first off, it was amazing to get back on the road. Um, I'm the opposition leader that was elected in a pandemic, gave my first speech to an empty room, except for a few family, friends, uh, and a few audiovisual guys who are really the people I speak to most days uh, in our studio here in Ottawa. And for me to get back on the road was just so great. So we did Stampede, 
and, and many parts of Southern Alberta. And then we went out to British Columbia, including the island, the Okanagan, Lower Mainland, and then Saskatchewan, both Regina, sort of Estevan area, Cowessus First Nation and, and Saskatoon. And it was just so good. I hadn't spoken to a little stump speech of people in a legion hall or, or a pub uh, as leader. I hadn't been in a pub myself with people in over like 16 months. So it, I was a bit rusty, to be honest with you, Brandon, uh, but it was just so good. And, and especially Stampede is such a rallying point for Albertans that I think it was really important. My last Stampede was the Come Hell or High Water Stampede where there'd been the flooding. Um, so the perseverance of Albertans and as, as embodied through the Stampede was amazing. And I'm, I'm leaving soon to go to Atlantic Canada and then, then Quebec. So eventually the opposition leader's getting out there and it looks like Trudeau doesn't want me to get out there uh, to, to actually meet people, but uh, I'm going to do my best. Well, I guess maybe a, a couple of questions out of that. And and I just quickly on Stampede, you know, that was my first time out there. And uh, as, a, as a kid from a farm, it's so great to see that passion for agriculture. And it's just represented so well by Stampede. It doesn't matter if it's grain or livestock or anything else. And I just think I was so proud to see that. And I hope it continues. But maybe I, I don't think you'll know the answer to it. But what are you thinking for an election here? I, I think you kind of alluded to it that it might be sooner than we think. Are you uh, I know you're getting ready. What are you what are you thinking? Well, we're hearing the rumors you're hearing, um, you know, that he could call it in August for a September vote or, or, or slightly later than that. Literally six hours after I became leader, maybe seven hours, uh, we had a meeting at 830 in the morning to plan for a potential October election of last year. Then there was talk of an election this spring. We, we've all thought that Mr. Trudeau wants to use the crisis of COVID as kind of a rally around the flag. We can't change horses in, in midstream type, type scenario. But I think Canadians, whenever the election comes, it's not going to be about the past and COVID. Like people want to look forward. How are we going to dig out of debt? How are we going to get people back to work? We've got, we've spent more per capita than most of the G7 nations and have the worst outcomes in terms of employment. So in March, you know, we launched Canada's recovery plan because we want to start being ahead in, in the economic recovery as opposed to being behind as we were throughout the pandemic. So I'm thinking that, and I do think the campaign, uh, if it's this summer or early fall, will be kind of like a normal campaign with some modifications because the, the country isn't fully open yet. Um, so we can't do everything as per normal. So We've been using the studio for months. We will be able to use this, but nothing replaces getting out on the ground and connecting with people directly. Well, I hope for all of our sake that, you know, across the country, there's no more waves and we're all able to get together and enjoy and what Alberta has been able to do in Saskatchewan to some extent over the last few weeks here. I, I hope that spreads, but I'd like to maybe move into a couple of agricultural questions here uh, and, and maybe start with, with trade. I know you have a tremendous amount of experience in international trade, and you've also taken a pretty hardline approach to Canada's role on the international stage, and in particular with China. And you're well aware we still have ongoing market access issues with China. 
But there's also a number of other countries that we're facing uh, market barriers to, whether or not we have free trade agreements with them or not. And I think as a sector, it's it's safe to say we've we've been frustrated by a, I would say a lack of results. You know, I know government officials are in regular contact with other nations and and are and are you know do, putting up the good fight where possible. But at the end of the day, for the grain sector, and I would suggest all sectors, all that really matters is results. So if you win and this next election, whenever it may come, and become prime minister. How would you shift to a results-driven trade agenda? Well, results will be what I want the industry to hold me to account for. And results come not just from increasing exports and stability, but opening new markets as well. You know, the more markets, the more diverse options, the more secure price that farmers can get. And we have seen, particularly with China and their uh, hostile approach to diplomacy, trade, and and the detention of uh, of the two Michaels, which I think are 960 days in in prison now, uh, I look at that in the Globe and Mail, and you know, shake my head um, how how their families must be feeling. But we certainly know grain growers, oil seeds have been particularly uh, hit by these disruptions in trade. So what we need to do is show a much more stronger, united approach on Chinese trade practices with the US, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and our closest allies, the Five Eyes, to counterbalance China's approach on trade, which is to isolate and punish countries that are smaller like Canada. Um, What we also need to do concurrently with that, though, is open new markets. And we've got to solidify the losses in India as a result of Mr. Trudeau's incredibly embarrassing and, uh, and destructive uh, state trip there. You all, we all remember the photos from that. But the first thing India did was put new tariffs on lentils, for example. And that's, at, that's a market that Canada had doubled trade in the time of the Harper government. Indonesia, Vietnam, there's exciting new markets. South Korea, I went to Seoul to finalize the first free trade agreement Canada has in Asia a country we also lost 516 Canadians helping secure the freedom of South, South Korea in the Korean War. And there's that bond there. Um, so we have to leverage our strengths, our positioning. But I'll tell you, Canadian ag products, grain, oil seeds, beef, pork, everything we produce is well-respected. It's sought after. It's best in class. And with growing middle classes in, in, in many parts of the world, they want the quality and, and the assurance of Canadian supply. So we have, to, we have to negotiate access. Well, we couldn't agree with you more on that. And, uh, and we have that quality that the world wants. And, and we we're happy to provide it. You know, we'll, we'll get into maybe drought conditions and some of the problems this year. But maybe I'll just touch on, you, you mentioned the five eyes. I know you've been a strong advocate for Kenzik. I'm just kind of curious if, if that's still an evolving position or kind of what we can expect out of, out of you should you win the election in that regard. Yes, I'm, I'm really proud to be associated with Kanzuk. You know, many people say you started Kanzuk, Aaron, and Kanzuk is Canada, Australia, New Zealand, UK. It's the shorthand sometimes diplomats use. It's four of the Five Eyes countries. It's our closest Commonwealth allies, same, same crown, same parliamentary structure, same rule of law. And it was actually kind of an online movement of people in those countries. And I was the first sort of prominent politician to back it. But it is still a major part of what we're advancing, Brendan. I've had Ed Fast, 
and then Carrie Lynn Finley, two former ministers, two privy councillors, continue to reach out and grow support for the initiative. So there are politicians from multiple parties in many different countries, very supportive of countries doing more together on trade, on mobility for our students and some of our workers, more defense cooperation, more intelligence sharing, more united approach with respect to China, advancing our interests and human rights. These are our best friends. We should do more with our best friends. And we should actually hold agencies of the UN where there's you know, corruption or, or not high standards. We should try and raise all boats. And I think Kanzuk is about aspirational foreign policy on a multilateral scale. So I think we're going to deliver it as a government because there's really strong interests in all the countries. Excellent. No, I mean, that's certainly when we see whether it be the WTO or any multilateral institution, we need to coordinate. You know, there's 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 other folks out there that have different interests at heart than we do than our sector. And we need to align ourselves. And, you know, that seems like a, a very good starting point because we already are aligned in many ways. So I, I mentioned the drought briefly there, and I know you've had the chance to tour around um, a good chunk of the country here lately. And, and in particular, Western Canada um, is facing serious drought conditions, as well as parts of BC and Ontario. Uh, it, it's bad, to put it simply. Um, you know, we're at the point in which even if we got rain, it's not really likely to help the majority of crops at this point. Um, and as you know, our, our sector and, and the grain growers in particular have been calling for changes to the suite of business risk management programs since those changes were made back in 2013. And there's a real level of concern that we might be in a dry cycle or just to increase climate variability um, that's likely only to worsen. You know, at the end of the day, grain growers, we, we only want to make money in the free market. We don't want money from government. But the reality is to protect the continuity of the family farm, the food security for Canadians and food security for folks around the world, those effective programs to backstop the tremendous risk that farmers take is, is required. So um, the next policy framework is, is set to come into place in 2023. There's discussions ongoing with the government and the provinces right now as to what that might look like. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, should, should there be an election this fall and you win, will you commit to making meaningful reforms so we have functional business risk management programs that at a time I think is pretty critical here because things aren't looking good right now and you know, there's a serious worry of what this means for next year and, and putting those programs in place is pretty important to our sector, I'd say. I, I agree. And yes, we're, we want to make the programs more reflective of the needs today, more bankable for farming families. And ag stability in particular is something that for several years we've just heard isn't meeting the mark. And it was heartbreaking to speak to many farmers, particularly when I was in Saskatchewan at the tail end of my tour, just, you know, farmers in my own region, Durham, and there's great ag in Ontario, as you know, that actually the largest ag sector because of the size of our province. And we used to say that million dollar rain, we need the million dollar rain, but it's too late for the million dollar rains in, in many parts of the prairies. And, and they're, they're looking at this year as now a, a wash. And that's what a lot of Canadians don't realize that farming families have to live with that uncertainty of all that work, not, you know, not being harvested, not being actualized. And that's where the federal government has a role to, to provide consistency through those, through those ups and downs. It was disappointing when I spoke to, to Premier Mo that their discussions with Minister Bebo really were stonewalled. And that's frustrating because ag is not, import, not only important for our export markets, like it, 
ag industries are the lead sectors for a lot of our export strategy. It was under Harper. It's also part of our food security uh, issues. And if we've learned anything from COVID, we have to have more self-reliance and capacity as a country, including in food security. That's why the fourth pillar of Canada's recovery plan, the, the plan I launched in, in March, is self-reliance, secure our country. That includes capacity for, for production and, and modernizing and making sure the, the ag programs meet the needs of farming families today, particularly ag stability. Well, I can appreciate that, uh, Aaron, and and most folks listening will understand that. But the stress is is overwhelming. You're watching your crops literally just bake like they're in an oven, right? Like it is it is a difficult thing to comprehend, and especially faced with as you mentioned some of the protectionist wave that we're seeing out of other countries here. It it's collectively a, a worrying position. But farmers are amongst the most optimistic people that that are out there, and and they will always continue to battle through. Um, but maybe sticking with with the agricultural framework policy. You know, one area that is pretty critical in our view is uh, research, agricultural research. And with an investment of anywhere between 10 to 1 and 20 to 1, uh, agricultural research is kind of, it's proven itself. And we can see that through some of the, the fact that some crops are surviving okay this year during a drought goes to show some of the scientific development that's been undertaken for drought resistance, for example, that they're able to handle these conditions a little bit better. And, you know, we view as part of the post-pandemic economic recovery, Natural resources writ large, but certainly our sector, you know, we've kept our heads down during the pandemic and forged ahead and we will continue to. But there's obviously, um, there's been, a, I would say, a transition to, away from what I would say productivity research towards more policy research. And for farmers, what matters most is the ability to increase the amount that you can grow, both for your profitability uh, and for the sustainability of your operation. But from a climate change perspective, that means not bringing new land into production. That means you make the best of your of your uh, make the best of your land that you have available to you. So I guess you know big picture question again here is is should you win the next election as we move towards this this agricultural framework renewal for 2023? Can we count on your government or if you win to to make sure that research is not only sustained but ideally enhanced? I know there's battles over provinces and feds. There's there's a shortage of money available, but we really feel that this is a critical area for us. So I'd just like to hear your thoughts on it. Yes, and Brandon, you're not the first person to bring that up. And in fact, the innovation uh, of our ag sector is historic. I've had some people ask me if my riding of Durham is <laughs> named after Durham wheat. And it's no, it's not. But it's that a little was, different, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's spelled a little different. But that historic innovation is a world standard. And it was Canadian. It was very early ag innovation. And we have incredible... Uh, innovation in terms of productivity, in terms of resilience. And we're going to need more of that with climate change and, and other things we have to do. So yes, there will be a commitment. Part of our plan, that fourth pillar, is securing the capacity our country needs in the future. And I do think uh, not only is ag part of that, our, our agricultural industries are so important to our GDP uh, many provinces, you know, you're looking at ag being 50% plus of the GDP of the provinces, uh, keeping families well, communities strong. So innovation to make sure that we're being productive. We can we can weather, pardon the pun, some of the some of the changes we're going to see over over time. And you know, our good mutual friend Bob Sopak, innovations like alternative land use systems and and other things to talk about how we can. 
also try and recognize the environmental positives that farming families represent, both in in no-till farming, you know, uh, carbon uh, sequestration, getting their footprint down. You know, the liberals just think climate change is about taxing people. I think it's about being smart, and a lot of a lot of ag producers have been smart for decades without requirements of the government. So how can we, in terms of natural climate change solutions, almost credit or look at what what farming families are doing now? So we're very open to that. And and part of our innovation piece will definitely have an ag component to the investments. Excellent. I, I know our listeners will appreciate that. And I think it's really vital that connections made. Climate change is a problem that we uh, farmers are on the front lines of the effects and certainly want to be part of that solution. But any conversation without increase in innovation and increase in productivity really is irrelevant. And, and I'd liken, liken that to what we see. One of the things that's frustrated our sector is, is a recent proposal from the government for a 30% reduction in, in emissions from fertilizer. And to put simply, that's a bad approach because inevitably more land will need to be brought into production or you will just produce less food. Now, neither of those are very good options. Now, there's there's ways to manage that. There's nitrogen inhibitors. Um, there's there's four-hour nutrient stewardship. There's ways to try to reduce emissions in which, as you mentioned, farmers are already, already leading all the time on these issues. So I'm kind of curious your thoughts on how can Canada come up forward with a made in Canada environmental plan, which I know is, is similar to what you've already announced, but as it relates to agriculture, how do we both increase productivity while reducing emissions and, and what role does our sector and government play collectively to bring that together? Well, thanks, Brandon. And, you know, nothing illustrates the problem with the Trudeau government better than what you just described. Ottawa knows best. They will tell from on high in Ottawa or Gatineau, whatever office tower it is, what a farmer in rural Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Ontario needs to do. Here's what you need to do to be part of climate change. It should be the other way around. Here's what we're already doing. And here's what we can do on a time frame that's reasonable. Because already farming families are under attack through a rising and tripling of a carbon tax so many more regulations, chemical use regulations that are totally disconnected from what the U.S. is doing. And we're supposed to have regulatory cooperation and alignment with the U.S. And Canada is increasingly more expensive, more complicated, because Ottawa is completely disconnected. We will be 180 degrees different. Nothing says it better than the ministers, Brandon. Minister Bebo, zero experience in agriculture. My shadow minister, Leanne Rood, still lives on a farm in southwestern Ontario, grew up in a farming family, has been produce, used the food terminals, gets the language, and is consulting widely because ag is critical to our country's success. So I, I, I want to see the farming family and industry groups at the table for any major long-term plan on natural-based climate solutions, on emission reductions, on the pricing of carbon offsetting. And the plan we launched in March, the most comprehensive environmental plan ever launched before an election, it prices carbon, but not with a tax to Ottawa, with a price that then keeps that price with the person, the farm, the small business, and allows purchases to be made to reduce 
emissions, to lower the carbon footprint. It actually allows people to understand their carbon footprint. Uh, there's complete transparency as opposed to Mr. Trudeau actually sharing around revenues based on what he wants to do. So it's a proposal we put forward to show climate change is important to the conservatives, including to me as a dad. My, mom, my daughter Molly asks me about it all the time. What are you doing on climate change? So we're proud of our plan. We'll make our Paris targets without throwing our economy out the window, which is what Mr. Trudeau wants to do. So I think what I can say to farming families that are listening, watching this, Brandon, we're going to build partnerships. The Conservatives will be about a bottom-up approach on big long-term issues like climate change. We have to understand the needs of, of the producer and work with you and recognize what you're already doing. And that's something Ottawa under Trudeau just doesn't get. Well, we certainly appreciate that. And frankly, we have ideas. You know, the, the, these are these come from the ground up from, from my members, from our farmers across the country as to what will both work for them and what is a good idea. And, and whether that's, you know, removal of marginal lands or wetlands conservation, the sort of things I know you talked with, with Bob Sopak about regularly about mm -hmm. some of that natural infrastructure is so vitally important. But I do appreciate you brought up the, the plan because I do have one specific question um, out of the, the plan, which I think has been widely panned as a very credible plan. And, uh, you know, politically, I'm sure that's been rather useful to you as a party, but- Widely, the, widely applauded, not panned. Widely applauded. So, <laughs> so, some people have panned it, but, <laughs> no, but, but look, I, I make no bones with saying I think Canada should meet our commitments. I think when we sign on to something as a country, we're leaders. We should meet it, but not just with taxing people. Like That's not the solution. So we took time. We worked with the top climate change modeling firm in the country. Uh, we have an approach that's not a tax, but does price carbon. So um, so a lot of people have said, wow, it's it's innovative. It's it's more targeted and more detailed and third-party verified. Mr. Trudeau makes his up as he goes along. Well, and I appreciate I appreciate that. I mean, from our perspective, you know, you know how farmers feel about the carbon tax. But there is one question I have for you that I haven't seen out of that plan or haven't seen out of other conversations, and maybe it's been out there. But broadly speaking, will farmers be exempt from on-farm use of fuels from your proposed price? So Great question. The first thing to remember with our plan is this is a proposal we're putting to the provinces that is an alternative to Mr. Trudeau's backstop, which remember he's tripling the, the price of carbon. Our, ours will be a lot lower. And it's an alternative to a made in Saskatchewan, made in Alberta, made in Manitoba plan. What I wanna do is to make sure we meet our emissions targets with as minimal disruptions on producers, farming operators, or large emitters in the energy sector, for example. So we'll wanna work collaboratively as much as possible, but meet our targets. So with the low carbon savings account, um, you know, a farming operation that would pay a price on carbon, one third the price of, of, of Trudeau, would actually keep that money and then make purchase decisions on, on lowering their emissions it would be a more modest uh, price increase. But then with some creativity, uh, there could actually be a positive because it would, what we're proposing is almost like transferring from your, from your checking to your savings account, except this savings account would be for low carbon purchases. 
Um, but we're we're willing to work with any province or sector on a plan to meet the targets uh, with this price or without. It's all about the emission reductions. It's why we have a natural-based climate solutions package in there and a budget to help fund innovations and recognize what farming families are doing as part of the offset. So working collaboratively with the provinces, there could be a way that there could be rebates. This is what I said. I support what Premier Mo is trying to do. Ottawa accepted it for one province under Mr. Trudeau and then shot down Saskatchewan. How is that uniting the country? Mr. Trudeau's divided this country in six years, and it's, it's shameful, quite frankly. So what I said to Premier Mo is, if you're doing some credits to, to farming families and operators as part of a transition plan, uh, that, that's fair. Let's just make sure we can make milestones, including with innovations, including with carbon capture and sequestration, natural-based solution, to meet our targets. That's really just my goal. I do think the provinces are in the best place to run this because of their, their role in natural resources and in ag. But uh, it's about collaboration, not confrontation, which is Trudeau's style. Fair enough. Uh, that, that decentralization of the provinces, I, I figured that was uh, certainly a component. Uh, it's, it lines up ideologically. So maybe we'll take a quick break from, from the heavy, uh, heavy duty uh, climate change conversation. I've heard you're a music guy. What's your favorite Canadian rock band? My favorite Canadian band is Sloan. And so they're a Halifax band. Um, I'm a little older than you, Brandon. So uh, you, you might think they're like throwback or something. Aren't you but, a money, is that a Money City Maniac? Isn't that their song? Yes, yes. Okay. And in that song, they play the siren from the port in Halifax. Um, last time I saw Sloan live was in Winnipeg. I actually think it was in St. Boniface. I've seen them play in Halifax, I think in Toronto and in Winnipeg. Uh, really talented band. I lived in Halifax for years and they had one album, Twice Removed, that was almost like, they were almost like the Canadian Beatles. Hmm. And if you watch them, they all sing lead at various times and they will just switch instruments. I've never seen a band do that. So one lead singer will go and play the drums and the drummer comes up and sings. It's pretty wild. And when That's I lived in wonderful. Halifax, you'd see them sometimes around, uh, around town and, and uh, really down to earth, great band, great, great sort of, you know, chords and, and sort of hooks. And so uh, I, I love music. Um, I hosted a radio show when I was in university and played uh, Underwhelmed, which was kind of their breakthrough hit. Excellent. Well, I'm glad I asked that. That was a... You're a real music guy. I can't wait. You learned a lot about Sloan. There you go. I'm bringing the country together, Brandon. Now we're going to have a guy in rural Manitoba going out and downloading Sloan. I love it. Absolutely. Well, well, maybe maybe I'll touch on a question there that you just kind of mentioned, bringing the country together. You know, I think it's fair to say we're seeing some divisions. Our, you know, every part of this country has something to offer our confederation, but there are growing divisions, whether that be, you know, interprovincial trade barriers that I mentioned earlier between provinces um, or, or just general divides between provinces and regions, as you mentioned, between the Saskatchewan plan and others, or more broadly, rural and urban. So how do you plan to bridge those many divides that seem to be emerging or have already been there for a long time, but are becoming more uh, readily uh, accessible or visible? And how are you going to bring us together to succeed? And does that include interprovincial trade barriers in some way? 
Uh, first of all, yes, it does include barriers. But let me say the problem with the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau especially is the paternalism they show, probably best described by the Quebec Premier, uh, Premier Legault, who kind of compared it to Mr. Trudeau thinks the federal government is the father and the provinces are the children. Well, no, sorry, how our confederation works, it's a partnership. And a partnership is a view of working together for the mutual profit and benefit of everyone. That's, that's a partnership at law. And our constitution was meant to respect provincial jurisdiction. Trudeau disregards it all the time, especially on oil and gas, especially on, on issues related to his carbon tax. And, it's, and it's, it's driving people apart when hundreds of thousands of people are out of work because of anti-energy policies in, in Ottawa. And then you tack onto that an OPEC price war and, and, and COVID. Things are tough out there. So we need unity. We need respect. We need to actually respect our history and our constitution, not tear it down, understand it. I'm sure Mr. Trudeau's never read the constitution. Um, so what we have to do is bring people together. And I think we also have to get kicked down old barriers, including interprovincial trade barriers, which were never intended to be there. And um, the Como case, in, in which I know Beer Canada knows in, in New Brunswick, the Supreme Court should have modernized the law because the Supreme Court of, I think, the 30s or 40s made a huge mistake. They allowed little fiefdoms to build up, especially in beer. You know, we had the, the Olins in, in Nova Scotia and in, in, in New Brunswick, we had the Labats in Ontario, we had the Molsons. And we became big giants in smaller areas. And a friend of mine years ago wrote a book, Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson. Molson's the oldest brewer in North America. Why do more Canadians drink Corona than Mexicans drink export, for example? Because we became big in our small bathtubs. And, and we can't do that in the age of, of global trade. So we should be proud of what we do. We should try and be the best in the world. And we should be able to send a nice BC wine to Ontario and not worry about the fact that we have a great wine region in Niagara, for example. Let's celebrate all that we have. So we're going to accelerate this. We're going to bring a bill forward. Um, I've talked to Premier Pallister about it. He used to fight against this as an MP years ago. Now he's the Premier of, of one of our provinces. So I think there's a willingness and I'll tell you, Brandon, we would unlock about $2 billion of economic activity if this happens, and we would be taking the fight to the world. Let's be world leaders again. And, and uh, Trudeau doesn't get any of this um, because he hasn't worked in the private sector, but I've seen when Canadian companies shine on the world stage, it, it helps the whole country, it helps other country companies in Canada. So let's be, let's be strivers. Let's, let's go for the Go for the home run, not the bunt. <laughs> I love that analogy. And maybe just to come back to ag a little bit, but I think more broadly than agriculture is, is a difficult regulatory environment. And you're well aware that we have continuously dropped on every list of, of our regulatory environment. And in our sector, in the grain sector, we see that most predominantly in the regulatory bodies that don't necessarily understand that they are also inherently economic bodies. And their decisions, if unpredictable and inconsistent, are 
problematic for private investment to enter this country. So when you talk about being a world leader, is that one of the areas you'd like to focus on is regulatory reform, whether it be in agriculture or probably more broadly, a place for Canada to do business again? Yes. I, I've said, in fact, in an earlier call here today, uh, in this very studio, I said, I want Canada to be the top destination in the world for talent and investment. And that includes innovation investment. And I'll tell you, the world would love to invest more in Canada if we were seen as a place of certainty and things getting done. They know we have one of the most highly trained, highly educated workforces in the world. They know we're a safe, liberal democracy where people have freedoms. Doesn't matter if you've lived here three weeks or three generations. We're an amazing country. And, you know, I want to build up the country, not tear it down and apologize for it. Let's fix where we've fallen short and let's be proud of the country. And I think things that we produce here, we should really aggressively sell and promote around the world from our ag products right through to energy. And anytime a Canadian export is replaced, whether it's grain, whether it's oil and gas, the country replacing it does not meet our standards in terms of environment, transparency, human rights, rule of law, indigenous engagement. So why don't we market that? In an age of what's called ESG, environmental social governance, we should be the ESG superpower in ag, in resources, in advanced manufacturing, in aerospace. Um, that, that will be our approach. Let's, let's, let's grow our ambition as a country and government bureaucracy and layers and layers and layers of red tape drive away investment. And so my private sector background is like when I was Minister of Veterans Affairs. If there's not a reason for something, if things are being slowed down in the case of veterans, benefits getting to a family that needed it, I would kick down those doors because we need to get things done. And the old way of doing things from the 80s and 90s, which is just what the liberals perpetuate here in Ottawa, it's time for a change. I know we're running tight on time here, so I'd like to just wrap up with a couple of quick questions. One being um, legislative changes to the Canadian Grain Act. We have seen time and time again attempts, but never really get that across the finish line. The current government has undertaken a a process of consultation, which we fed into, and we're expecting a what we heard report. We don't want to stop there, though. And regardless of who's in government, we need legislative reform. So I'm just wondering if in the first year or two, if you win government, can we count on you to actually bring forward legislation on that and the Canada Grain Act? Certainly, we'll work with the priorities of each sector. And our, our priority will certainly be reopening export markets and certainty for price for, for farming families. But the priorities of the industry in terms of what you're investing, what's good for families, uh, including some of the bankability of programs, those will be our top priorities. So we look to partner. And we do have to call the last question. Sure. Yeah, I'm well, running out of time, Brandon, and, and, oh, and no, beer. Absolutely. So uh, one last I have, one. I have an important question for you then. Why should Canadian farmers vote for the Conservative Party in the next election? There's only one party that actually understands and respects farming families. And it's the Conservative Party. That sounds like a cliche. Look at the Trudeau government, who they have as the agricultural minister. No understanding and not even an attempt to understand. The NDP was supporting the illegal rail blockades that took part place before COVID-19. Who do you think that hurts? Anybody exporting. You know, how, how do blockades, how does supporting something called Shutdown Canada help Canada? 
And of course, the Greens, the Liberals, the NDP and the Greens sometimes seem like the same party to me. So we need all farming families and your extended family across the country to start showing your heft in our economy and how you're so core to our well-being, to our security as a country. We need your help in this next election. I like to say the Conservative Party is the party of Canada's confederation and Canada's recovery after COVID. So we need your support. Well, we appreciate that. I'm sure all the listeners out there are going to be thinking about this and it's it's going to be upon us in no time here this election. It seems to be going that way. So Aaron, thank you so much for joining us for today on, on this episode of Beers with Brandon. I, I hope you've enjoyed it and I know all of our listeners will. So I'll just offer up, you have any final words before we let you go? Well, thank you, Brandon. Thank you, uh, Grain Growers Beer Canada. I'll be having a bit of grain and beer this summer myself. So I'm supporting the, the, the sector in my own way. But best wishes to all the farming families uh, on behalf of the Conservative Party. We're really proud of what you do. You work hard. You're part of the heart of this country. So we'll have your back. Excellent. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, And thank you to our presenting sponsor, Beer Canada, the voice of those who make our nation's beers. Most importantly, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another special guest. In the meantime, if you want to stay up to date with all things Grain Growers of Canada, please follow us on Twitter at Grain Growers or on Instagram at Canada's grain growers. Until next time, get out there and enjoy some high quality Canadian grains in our nation's favorite summertime drink, Canadian beer.